Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Over the course of his prolific career, from early 1960s monochrome paintings to more recent work inspired by Chinese art and culture, Bryce Martin has established himself as one of the most important abstract painters of our time. In this lecture, recorded on June 30th, 2013, at the National Gallery of Art, Eileen Costello discusses her new book, Bryce Martin, Fight and Focus. Costello tracks Martin's development as an artist and provides insight into his significance by exploring his work's origins, meaning, and media. In 2006, on the occasion of his retrospective exhibition at New York's Museum of Modern Art, Bryce Martin was hailed by critic Peter Sheldahl as the most profound abstract painter of the past four decades. Among many extraordinary accolades, the MoMA show represented a particular landmark for Martin, who had explored its legendary collection when he was a teenager. Martin first gained attention in the mid-1960s with his much-admired series of intensely worked, seemingly monochromatic canvases with their sensuous surfaces of oil paint mixed with beeswax and their complex, muted colors. He also produced grid-pattern drawings painstakingly rendered by working compressed charcoal or crayon and graphite into the paper. The grid soon evolved into solid black squares made all the more lustrous by carefully applied layers of wax. In the early 1980s, Martin began to introduce brighter colors as well as a sense of transparency into his paintings and drawings. In the 1990s, his work took a dramatic turn when he began to invent forms based on Chinese calligraphy. He continues to make variations on these motifs today in paintings that have become even more vibrant and further energized by serpentine-like bands that loop and weave within the confines of the rectangular canvas. Remarkably, throughout the course of his illustrious career, amid the continuous arrival of new art forms such as minimalism, pop and conceptual art, body art, environmental art, video art, and installation art, styles in which artists deliberately sought to eliminate any trace of emotion in their work, Martin never wavered from his commitment to making abstract and frankly personal paintings. At a time when many in the art world were pronouncing painting dead, Martin was one of a few young painters who kept it alive. For some, Martin's work may appear blank, inaccessible, and inscrutable. They may assume that it takes knowledge of theory or aesthetic doctrine to understand his seemingly single-color paintings, his grid works, his stick drawings, or the more recent canvases with their squiggly lines. Yet Martin continually references or takes as his subject matter things that exist in the real world, people with whom he has felt an emotional response or connection, the light and atmosphere of a place that has somehow affected him, or objects that are important to him. Like the abstract expressionists before him, against whom many of Martin's contemporaries in the 1960s and 70s were reacting, Martin has always sought to convey his sense of what inspired him, rather than a factual illustration of the person, place, or thing. Martin's art requires no special knowledge. It simply invites viewers to stretch their understanding of how a painting or drawing can speak of something in the world, sometimes through color alone, and often in a color we did not know existed. 
we are challenged to recognize that shapes and forms can register meaning even when they do not look like anything even vaguely concerned with visual reality. Bryce Martin was born in 1938 and grew up in Briarcliff Manor, a small suburban town on the Hudson River, 30 miles north of Manhattan. His father, who was a mortgage servicer, and his mother, a housewife, placed greater emphasis on academic achievement than artistic pursuits. But Martin does remember growing up with reproductions of well-known paintings in the home, in particular Bellini's portrait of Doge Leonardo Loredan, who, he says, his family nicknamed Joe. As a teen, Martin seriously considered going into hotel management. He was inspired by the highly successful Conrad Hilton, who was establishing an international chain of hotels, many of which were considered the finest in the world. But he also spent time looking through art books in the collection of his best friend's father, an art director at the advertising firm Young and Rubicon. It was his friend's father who first recognized Martin's interest in art and encouraged it by giving him a gift subscription to Art News. Art News introduced Martin to the work of Willem de Kooning, Franz Klein, Barnett Newman, Jackson Pollock, Clifford Still, and Mark Rothko. Martin fell in love with abstract expressionism, and by his senior year in high school, he decided that he wanted to be an artist. Martin began his training at Boston University's School of Fine and Applied Art, where he enrolled in 1958. Although he was drawn to abstraction, BU offered very traditional academic courses with an emphasis on technique and drawing from the figure. Martin supplemented his education with frequent visits to the local museums. His 1959 self-portrait represents a synthesis of his early training as well as his aspirations. Here Martin himself served as model, but he also fashioned himself after the German expressionist Max Beckmann in his self-portrait in a tuxedo, which he had seen at Harvard's Bush Reisinger Museum. Like Beckmann, Martin used strong and expressive color and divided his face into patches of light and shadow. Yet Martin also introduced a more contemporary take on the artist hero. Instead of a formal suit, he wears a blue work shirt. It was the artist's uniform at that time, made popular by de Kooning. The Dutch-American abstract expressionist had arisen from working-class beginnings in his native Rotterdam and maintained an artist's blue-collar worker identity throughout his life in reaction against that of the fine artist and in recognition of his roots. Beckmann, dressed in a tuxedo with one arm akimbo and the other dangling a cigarette, looks more like an industrialist or banker. He portrays himself as a commanding figure, and indeed, he painted this self-portrait when he was at the height of his fame as one of Germany's leading avant-garde painters. Martin's gaze is as intent and unwavering as Beckmann's and conveys a similar gravitas. He has a cool confidence, and this self-portrait foretells an artist who would achieve as great a standing as that of his model. Martin looked to the modernists, but he also studied the work of 17th, 18th, and 19th century masters, including the French realist Edouard Benet, who was one of his favorites. He spent a great deal of time contemplating Manet's provocative painting, The Street Singer, in Boston's Museum of Fine Arts. Martin later remarked that this was the painting I was looking at when I really started learning about color. The street singer depicts Manet's muse, Victorine Miron, emerging from a cafe burdened with a guitar and a cluster of red cherries wrapped in a yellow sheet of paper from which she brings a handful to her lips. 
Manet cast the painting in a soft, blonde gray, marked by a masterful blending of black and beige. He skillfully unites the composition by matching the dark folds of Victorine's costume with the shadowy interior from which she emerges. Martin later described this painting as his first real color experience, and the unusual color registers that he absorbed from looking at Manet would lead some later critics to describe his colors as unnameable. Spanish painting also had a profound impact on Martin, who greatly admired the alternately warm and cool blacks and browns achieved by Diego Velázquez and Francisco Goya's dark, dramatic colors. He was also deeply impressed by the work of Francisco de Zerberon, who, he felt, could imbue a narrow range of colors with such intense emotive value that his images of monks, saints, and martyrs exert a powerful effect on the viewer. Martin once remarked that Zerberon had the ability to, and I quote, take subject matter and go beyond it in a mystical sense. The way he would paint silk, I always imagined that he got so involved with painting the silk, he must have looked at it and painted it so carefully, so intensely, that he went beyond it and made it into something that was actually really felt or was being felt on different levels, end quote. Zerberon achieved what would become one of Marden's chief aspirations. As he wrote in his thesis statement while a graduate student at Yale University, he wished to make, quote, highly emotional paintings not to be admired for any technical or intellectual reason, but to be felt. In addition to visiting local museums, Marden regularly traveled from Boston to New York, where he had more opportunity to see abstract expressionist exhibitions. He frequented the famed Sidney Janis Gallery, which represented Franz Klein and presented exhibitions of Klein's new paintings in 1958 and again in 1960. Under the spell of a new influence, Martin made one of his earliest abstract paintings, Quaqua Versals. With its bold and energetic black brush strokes cast upon a bone white background, Quaqua Versals evokes any number of Klein's celebrated black and white paintings, which he had become famous for in the 1950s. The young artist readily intuited Klein's ability to marshal an internal force that not only drives the composition, but displays the vitality of the gesture. Although primarily done in black and white, the range of grays in Quaqua Versals reveals Martin's interest in tonal values. Quaqua Versals foreshadows his exploration of gray's inexhaustible potential and his later interest in energetic, crisscrossing, intersecting lines. In the summer of 1961, shortly after he graduated from BU, Martin was one of a few young artists invited to attend the highly selective Yale Summer School of Music and Art in Norfolk, Connecticut. The community of students that summer included Via Selmans, Chuck Close, and David Novros. Idyllically located amidst the rolling hills and scenic landscapes of northwest Connecticut, there he was able to devote himself to painting whatever he felt without any restrictions. Like many artists before him and since, Marden was greatly influenced by the French post-impressionist painter Paul Cézanne, who was obsessed with the idea of infusing his work with personal expression. As Cézanne famously said, I paint as I see and as I feel, and I have very strong feelings. At Yale Summer School, Marden completed a number of Cézanne-esque paintings, including Norfolk, in which he sought not to portray an exact likeness of what he was seeing, but rather to convey, as Cézanne put it, his sensation of what he was seeing. 
In the fall of 1961, Marden began Yale University's prestigious graduate program at the School of Art and Architecture, where his work became increasingly more abstract. In fact, his work had become so closely aligned with that of the abstract expressionists, especially Klein and de Kooning, that one of his teachers at Yale, Esteban Vicente, challenged him to break with their style. Marden remembered thinking, you've got to learn to paint like yourself. As a way out, he turned to making paintings and drawings that relied solely on shape and color, which he later described as blatantly simple color-shape statements. He primarily worked with grays, as he would up until the early 1970s, because the seemingly simple color challenged him to explore and investigate its complexity. But blatantly simple it is not, for Marden's gray can take on many guises. There is dull and ghostly gray, snowy dusk gray, slate, lead, and silvery gray. Gray can also be made into different colors, which, as Martin later said, was what he liked about it, how you could make it be gray and also be red, or how a gray could turn itself green. Working with different shades of gray allowed Martin to play with the idea of ambiguity, as in, that's a gray area. He found it especially appealing because ambiguity is central to much of abstract expressionism, which allows for a multiplicity of meanings. De Kooning's drawings and paintings of women, for example, can be read as either figurative or abstract. Gray offered Martin a way to remain committed to abstract expressionism, yet not look like de Kooning. Gray also suggests mystery, and this, Martin believes, is one of painting's essential components. As for shape, Marden worked with the rectangle, which he divided vertically and horizontally into four individual quadrants. By limiting himself to the spatial and structural limits of the rectangle, he was free to concentrate on complex color combinations. The sectioning also allowed him to explore the effect of one shape or color meeting the edge of another. He became very involved with his materials, applying the paint in short, rapid strokes, and using the size and the shape of the canvas to determine the length and width of his marks. He built up thick layers of paint to emphasize the physicality of the art object. It was important for Martin to investigate the fact that a painting is a flat surface, as opposed to the age-old idea of a painting as a transparent window through which one observes the world. By reasserting their materiality, he affirmed that his works were paintings rather than magic windows that transported you elsewhere from what you were actually seeing, paint and canvas, or charcoal and graphite on paper. In the spring of 1963, Marden completed his MFA at Yale and moved to New York with his then-wife, Pauline Baez, sister of the folk singer Joan Baez, who he had married during his senior year, and their year-old son, Nicholas. They found a small apartment on Avenue C on the Lower East Side, which in the early 1960s was a grimy, run-down, and dangerous area of Manhattan. Martin's work reflects the grimness of the Lower East Side, and while he continued to make paintings with right angles, he now broke the surface into just two asymmetrical rectangles. This prevented his paintings from appearing too decorative, which one of his teachers at Yale had warned him could happen. Sometimes the division is obvious, yet sometimes it is barely off-center, which forces the viewer to look more closely at the work. With a wife and young son to support, in the spring of 1964, Marden took a job as a part-time attendant at the Jewish Museum, which at the time was becoming a center for important shows of contemporary art. Marden's hire coincided with a Jasper Johns retrospective, his first, and as a museum guard, Martin had ample time to study Johns' work. 
Martin was struck by the way in which John's related flat motifs, such as maps, flags, targets, numbers, and letters of the alphabet, to the painting's vertical surface, which in effect unified shape and painted object, subject. He also admired John's intense painterliness and the way it broke the surface of the work. Martin also found an artistic ally for some of John's most expressive early works are made in gray, such as gray rectangles and jubilee. In 1970, Martin would paint three deliberate grays for Jasper John's in homage to the artist who in some ways sanctioned his early explorations of gray. In the summer of 1964, Martin and his family left New York for a four-month sojourn in Paris where his father-in-law, Albert Baez, was a director at UNESCO. The small studio apartment in which they stayed was cramped, and Martin had no room in which to paint. Instead, he made frottage rubbings of the kitchen's tiled wall to produce a series of grid-patterned drawings. Martin used compressed charcoal, which is heavier and greasier than normal, normal charcoal, because he wanted a denser shade of black. He also found that he could erase into the rubbed charcoal to produce a broad range of grays. Occasionally, he would sand the surface down, which not only allowed him to achieve greater variations of black and gray, but also gave the drawing a texture that activated its surface, which he liked. He thought of these drawings as a continuation of the paintings he had been working on at that time, which were not only predominantly gray, but often had a slightly streaked surface. The grid is common to many artists and is also strongly associated with the 1960s minimalists who used it as a way to make an unemotional, expressionless artwork. Unlike the minimalists, Martin's grid drawings are never mechanical or anonymous. Instead, they are hand-measured and always display evidence of his personal mark-making, which makes them so expressive. A later work, for example, titled Patent Leather Valentine, has a surface of arduously applied pastel, graphite, and beeswax as shiny as patent leather, which practically conceals a thinly incised grid. Upon very close inspection, one can make out that Marden has also scratched a tiny heart into each and every one of the squares, a heartfelt valentine to the woman who would become his second wife, Helen Harrington. When Martin returned to New York following his stay in Paris, he began to rework a painting he had begun the previous year. Having used the grid on one half of the canvas and an equally sized rectangle on the other, he found that he preferred the blank half, so he painted the grid out and produced his first of many truly single-color paintings, Return One. Return One is a chalky gray and the painting surface is scratched, coarse, and scruffy as a result of the spatula and painting knife that he used to apply the thick, viscous layers of paint. Martin does not mind these imperfections because they reveal that the painting was made by hand as well as emphasize the labor that went into making the work. Significantly, Return One is one of Martin's first paintings to incorporate what would become a distinctive feature of his 1960s work an approximately one-half-inch margin at the bottom of the canvas within which the artist has allowed drips of paint to gather or smear. This margin is quite deliberate. Martin first delineated its edge with a hard pencil, almost like an incised line, and then painted all the way down to the drawn edge. He exercised little or no control over what happened below the drawn edge, but allowed the margin to reveal his painting process, especially the layering and variety of colors that he applied to the canvas. 
It also makes evident that the color Marden ultimately achieved was arrived at slowly. Marden once referred to this margin as an index or history of the painting. Marden also incorporated a margin into many of his drawings, which he often thinks of as paintings on paper. Marden's margin comes partly from Jasper Johns, who in the late 1950s and early 1960s left the lower section of his canvases bare. Marden also looked at Alberto Giacometti, who often painted a frame within his paintings as a way to offset the image from the canvas. The margin also derives from Marden's stay in Paris, which coincided with a massive restoration program in the aftermath of World War II. Marden remembers watching workmen stucco the outside of a building, noting the changes layer by layer in color and texture as they applied the wet, drippy plaster as if it were paint. He recalled that it would take them days to restucco the walls, and as they worked their way down, the fresh dribbles of plaster collected along the bottom. Return one he describes as having grown out of the involvement with those walls in Paris and thinking about Giacometti. In 1966, Martin had his first solo exhibition in New York at the recently opened Bikert Gallery. All of the paintings in the exhibition were large, single-panel canvases of varying sizes, and they were all done in what became his signature medium of the 1960s and 70s, oil and beeswax. Until the mid-1960s, Martin had used a mixture of oil paint and natural resin, which gave his paintings a glossy surface. But he then found that the reflective surface of his paintings made it impossible for the viewer to notice the subtle shades of color that he was working so hard to achieve. At the suggestion of a fellow artist, Harvey Quaitman, he introduced beeswax into the oil paint as a way to tone down the shine and eliminate the visual interference. Martin's process involved melting the beeswax in a double boiler over a hot plate to which he added turpentine. He then blended oil pigment into the liquefied wax turpentine mixture on a discarded refrigerator door that he used as his palette. This produced a substance with the consistency of peanut butter. Brushing on the hot mixture, he smoothed it with a spatula and knife, building layers or veils of color. Jasper Johns also used a mix of wax and pigment in his early paintings, although his process, known as encaustic, differed from Marden's. Encaustic, from the Greek encaustikos, means to burn in. With encaustic, the pigment is added to the wax as it is melted over a heat source. The wax then binds with the oil paint, which creates a brittle surface. Marden's process yielded a more tactile and sensual surface, which make his paintings appear soft and palpably malleable. One observer likened them to blocks of luxury chocolate waiting to be bitten. In addition to creating a smooth surface, the wax also allowed Marden to expose his handling of the paint, since it preserved each individual mark as the mixture cooled. The paintings in the Bikert exhibition were done in a variety of complicated colors that ranged from pale grays and greens to bruised purples and tans. Many of these paintings alluded to individuals who had, in one way or another, affected Marden's life in New York. They included the blondish gray Nico, a painting that Marden based on the Velvet Underground's sultry lead singer, who also featured in a number of Andy Warhol's factory films. It is obviously not a portrait of Nico, but instead it is meant to evoke her blondness and light tan pantsuits, as Martin later remarked, this idea of blondness, the blondness of a Nordic singer. 
For Carl Andre is a homage to his friend, the minimalist artist who is quickly gaining recognition for his floor pieces. This was the only painting in the exhibition to approximate the shape of a square, so in format and color, a slate blue-gray. It refers to Andre's sculpture rather than his person. The mauve gray Dylan painting was made in tribute to the celebrated singer-songwriter Bob Dylan. Martin had been an enthusiastic music fan since his student days in the Boston-Cambridge area, where his wife's sister, Joan Baez, got her start. New York's Greenwich Village was also a popular nexus for the folk scene in the 60s, and through friends, Martin had a chance to meet Dylan, whom he described as kind of a hero for me. He told the musician that he would make a painting for him to help his career, but by the time he finished the canvas, Dylan was already a star. Martin continued to make single-panel one-color paintings throughout the 1960s until, recognizing that he needed a new challenge, he began to make diptychs and triptychs, two- and three-panel paintings, more often joined vertically, each panel a different hue and usually in contrasting colors. At first, he was confronted with the problem of how to combine or juxtapose two panels of different colors, equal in hue and density, and still convey a unified whole. Eventually, he would come to eliminate the border along the bottom edge of the canvas because he felt that the margin made the panels appear disconnected from one another, and he did not want to disrupt the picture plane. At that point, it was left to the small nicks and scratches in the painting surface to reveal the number and variety of colors he had applied to the canvas to arrive at such hues. Range exemplifies Martin's departure from his earlier predominantly gray-green palette. Its title suggests the painting's array of colors that range from light to dark, yet its earth tones allude to the open range of a western landscape. He probably had both in mind, for as a teenager, Martin dreamed of being in a rodeo. A year later, he would entitle a two-panel painting, Rodeo. For Pearl, references Janis Joplin's nickname. It began as a landscape painting stimulated by the Mediterranean's earthy tones, but upon the news of Joplin's fatal overdose, it ended up, he wrote in one of his notebooks, a day-glow dirge for a great dancing lady. A spot of deep Mediterranean earth red is all that remains under an evasive flesh color that fights its way back and forth between flesh life or death as a Daytona Beach tract house brown. Star for Patti Smith is also a result of Marden's explorations in portraiture. In spirit, it is the fullest likeness of its subject, the New York poet, songwriter, singer, and Marden's good friend. Smith used to come to his studio to use his typewriter, an Olivetti, because she thought it improved the quality of the rock criticism she was writing for Rolling Stone magazine. The dimensions of each of the vertical panels are the height and shoulder width of Smith. The colors are hers also blue-black hair, and pale skin tone. The surface of each painted panel is as smooth as skin. Like some of Zerberon's portraits, Star for Patti Smith has a coolness about it, yet it is a passionate painting. In a statement about the work, Martin reflected on his attempt to make a portrait, not a picture of a person, I hoped to embody a spirit. Soon, Martin began to vary the widths of the panels, increase their number, and make more complex arrangements. It became even trickier to balance the multi-panel painting, since the color of one panel greatly affects the one next to it. He continually sought to achieve what he describes as an equilibrium, which he did not base on any standardized color chart or set of rules, but rather on a personal, intuitive sense of balance between the different colors and how they held the shape of the painting. 
He once explained his procedure. I will paint on one panel until I arrive at a color that holds that plane. I move to another panel and paint until something is holding that plane that also interestingly relates to the other panels. I work the third, searching for a color value that pulls the planes together into a plane that has aesthetic meaning. He soon increased the number of panels to four and, with the magisterial theora, up to 18. In 1971, Marden and his wife Helen, who he married in 1968, visited Hydra, a small island in the Aegean Sea approximately 80 miles south of Athens. They have spent almost all their summers there ever since. The bright Mediterranean light, the changing colors of the sea, and the rocky, arid landscape made a powerful impression upon Marden. Many of his paintings, drawings, and prints of the next two decades allude either directly or tangentially to Greece. During his first summers on Hydra, before he had a studio in which to paint, Marden spent much time in their garden drawing in notebooks. He soon filled a 77-page notebook that he entitled Greece Summer. These ink drawings document a move in his work toward a deeper dialogue with nature. Although somewhat abstract, it is possible to identify Hydra's bare and rocky hillsides, which contrast with its pine-forested valleys. Like many of his travel notebooks, these drawings are not only studies of the sea and landscape, but they also contain ideas for future paintings. Drawing for Marden is a way of thinking. The intensity of the Mediterranean light initiated a profound change of color in Marden's paintings, as with the tripartite summer table. It was inspired by the play of sunlight upon an empty Coca-Cola bottle, a glass, and a lemon set out on a summer luncheon table. Marden did not begin the painting until he returned to New York, where, working from memory, he tried at least three different yellows before he arrived at the one in the final painting. As he later explained, he sought to create a strong tension and pull between the outside panels and to push the color to a stronger intensity than that to which he had been accustomed. At the time, it was one of his most vibrant paintings to date. Martin often works thematically, and one of his best-known series from the 1970s is The Grove Group, a set of five paintings and just as many drawings that he worked on between 1972 and 1976. The paintings are made of one, two, or three panels, and their blue-gray-greens come from the olive groves in Greece. He was not interested in making representational paintings of trees, but used the olive grove as a reference for color ideas that would capture the landscape's light as color without actually depicting that light. As he has said, he does not paint nature, but instead uses the information that nature gives him to make his paintings. Unlike the Impressionists, Marden does not work en plein air. These paintings rely on Marden's notes that record the shimmering light in the grove, the bark of the trees, the wind rustling through the branches, and the colors of the leaves changing as they turn in the breeze to reveal their lighter undersides. With the Grove Group paintings, Marden achieved his most remarkable variations of color, evoking not only the olive groves, but also the sea and sky, slate and trees that unmistakably typify the Mediterranean countryside. The five Grove Group drawings are much smaller than the paintings, but they, too, are all the same size and directly parallel the painting's assorted configurations. To make them, Marden used a razor blade to slowly and patiently scrape away a thin layer of paper in the exact shape and size of the overall image, leaving a margin of untouched paper all around. 
He then built up alternating layers of graphite and beeswax, ultimately allowing the image to be flush with its support. The density of the rectangles and their highly polished blackness give the drawings the same power as the paintings, but in a different medium. In late 1977, the Basel Cathedral Foundation invited Martin to present a proposal for a set of stained glass windows for their cathedral. One of the reasons he accepted the commission, he said, was because he thought it would give his work an interesting push. The project occupied much of his time from 1978 until 1985, and although the foundation eventually abandoned the commission, dozens of drawings and paintings emerged from his work on it, which mark a major shift in Marden's development. First, he introduced linear elements into his drawings and paintings, equally emphatic horizontal and diagonal lines, breaking from his format of monochrome panels for the first time. The idea of windows also forced him to ruminate on the immateriality of light. This quest for transparency compelled him to substitute terpineol, a solvent-like substance that causes the paint to dry flat, for beeswax as a binder. With the use of terpineol, the previously dense and nearly opaque surfaces of his paintings began to move towards translucence with a gem-like quality. Martin titled the first group of paintings in the Windows-inspired work to reflect this change, Elements 1 through 5. Whereas in his earlier paintings, Martin chose his color intuitively, in the Elements paintings, he based his choices on a formula derived from the symbolism of medieval alchemy. Red for fire, blue for water, green for earth, and yellow for air. These four colors, in turn, correspond to the mystical associations of mind, spirit, body, and soul. In the early 1980s, concurrent with the Basel Window Project, Martin began to feel the need to change direction and move away from the monochromatic panels that many had begun to consider his signature style. His work began to change course with drawings such as untitled workbook, Caribbean and Hydra, which he made using an ordinary twig as an ink-dipped implement. Drawing with sticks permitted him to achieve a type of linear quality that encouraged irregularities and accidents not found in his earlier drawings. He began to allow his line to meander as he progressed across the paper and changed direction with curves and angles. Martin does not make his drawings flat on a table, but affixes them to the wall so he can work standing up. The sticks are often more than a foot and a half long, which forces him to use not only his hand and wrist in executing the drawings, but also his arm, giving the work a greater sense of movement and fluidity. The long sticks also magnify his gestures. This technique is similar to that of Henri Matisse when he drew the design for the Chapelle de Rosaire Vence with a charcoal stick attached to a long bamboo pole. Working on a vertical surface also increases opportunities for chance lines or marks to occur as well as unintended dripping. While Martin tries to control this to some degree, he occasionally feels the need to make what he refers to as cancellations. He goes back into the drawing and draws over a black or dark-colored ink line with white gouache. Sometimes these cancellations evolve into new and unexpected glyph-like images, which work in relation to the drawn black image. An epiphanic moment occurred for Martin in late 1984 when he visited an exhibition of Masters of Japanese Calligraphy 8th through 19th century at New York's Asia Society Galleries in the Japan House. 
The exhibition had a profound impact upon him and led to an increasing interest in Chinese calligraphy, which he found more appealing than Japanese writing because it appeared less ornate to him. Asian culture, its poetry, art, and especially Chinese calligraphy became the predominant influence in his work. It was the energy of the calligraphic line that appealed to Martin, as well as its balance, simplified form, and economy of expression. He was also attracted to the fact that such ideograms do not exist in the West and that he could not understand their meaning, which allowed him to look at the forms simply as drawings. As he noted, there is no form in Western art that is the same or does the same. Martin soon embarked on what would become his most highly acclaimed series, the Cold Mountain Suite of six monumental canvases and numerous related ink drawings and prints that date through the mid-1990s. The Cold Mountain Group derives from the poems of Han Shan, the 8th or 9th century Tang Dynasty Chinese poet, whose name literally translates as Cold Mountain. Han Shan was a hermit who made his home in a remote mountain range called Tiante, or Heavenly Terrace, a refuge for Taoist and Buddhist monks and pilgrims who sought enlightenment. He was a legendary figure who wrote his poems on trees, stones, and rock walls, or carved them since it is difficult to imagine how they would have survived the mist and rain. Some 300 poems by Han Shan exist, of which Martin took a selection as the basis for these ambitious works, and I have included an excerpt here from one of Han Shan's poems. My true home is cold mountain perched among cliffs beyond the reach of trouble. The Tiente Mountains are my home. Mist-shrouded cloud paths keep guests away. Thousand-meter cliffs make hiding easy above a rocky ledge among 10,000 streams. With bark hat and wooden clogs, I walk along the banks with hemp robe and pigweed staff. I walk around the peaks. Once you see through transience and illusion, the joys of roaming free are wonderful indeed. Most of the cold mountain paintings have a gray atmospheric background, and their colors, light blue, forest green, black and white, are suggestive of the landscape in which Han Shan lived, with its wet and misty hills, tall pines, gorges and cliffs, slippery moss, and cold, always cold. Martin configured each of the works within the Cold Mountain series on the structure of Han Shan's poems as written in Chinese, which is basically in the form of a grid. They are arranged in four sets of couplets, that is, two columns, with five characters per, per line to result in eight vertical rows with 40 characters to a poem. In the traditional Chinese writing system, characters are written in columns top to bottom with the columns reading from right to left. Like a calligrapher, Martin, who was left-handed, began by making his first mark in the top right corner and worked vertically downwards before moving to the top of the next column. Yet intuition also entered the picture as he let the couplets guide him as well as the canvas's edges, which govern the extent of his exterior lines, as in Cold Mountain 6. The paintings are a stark network of tangled skeins along the lines of Jackson Pollock's classic drip-pour paintings, which also provided an influence for the Cold Mountain works. At 9 by 12 feet, the cold mountain canvases, like many of Pollock's paintings, are mural-sized. And like Pollock, these paintings are, essentially, heroic-sized drawings on canvas, a translation of Martin's stick-drawing technique to oil, paint, linen, and monumental scale. 
Pollock often used a stick in lieu of a paintbrush to apply paint to the canvas as it lay flat on the studio floor, yet Mard never makes paintings with sticks. Instead, he uses long-handled brushes, which measure from 24 to 36 inches long. This distance allows him to see what he is drawing simultaneous to the totality of the painting. As you recalled, one of the things I wanted to do in these cold mountain paintings was to lose myself in the same way that I lose myself when I am drawing. And just as Pollock used his whole body in broad gestures, walking up and down or alongside the canvas, Marden began to use his whole body to paint rather than engaging just his wrist or his arm, making the lines rounder and more relaxed, which gives them a sense of greater fluidity. In the mid-1990s, Marden visited China, which heightened his already keen interest in Chinese art and culture. Soon the influences on his work extended beyond calligraphy, landscape painting, and poetry to include ornamental rocks and tomb sculpture, such as clay figurines of dancers based on real-life court dancers. Similar to Egyptian pharaohs, Han Dynasty rulers were interred with objects who substituted for the real ones that the deceased had left behind and who were considered to be indispensable for a comfortable afterlife. The dancers wore loose, flowing robes with extremely long sleeves that they would fling over their shoulders while dancing. Martin captures the dancers' rhythm and movement along with the elegant gestures of the figurines in Chinese dancing, a ten-foot-wide exuberantly painted canvas with joyous bands of red, blue, and yellow. While in China, Martin visited Suchow, a city west of Shanghai known for its meticulously designed ancient rock gardens. Marden was especially taken with the Lingering Garden with its legendary limestone rock, the Cloud-Capped Peak. The Cloud-Capped Peak is one of the many limestone rocks that workers had excavated from nearby Lake Tai and transported to the garden sometime during the Ming Dynasty. These rocks are especially prized for their grayish color as well as their natural perforations, which are continually reshaped by water and wind over the centuries. They are meant to represent mountains within these formal gardens, and while the rocks themselves are elegant objects that one can appreciate for their aesthetic beauty, they are also used as meditation stones as a way to achieve enlightenment. Shortly after his visit, Martin completed Su Chao before and after, in which he captured the cloud-capped peaks, slender and elegant yet contorted form as it appears to pivot and sway. Similar to the actual rock, the canvas's dimensions are tall and wide, and its muted gray surface resembles the cloud-capped peak. The twisting lines are painted flat and convey simplicity and elegance that evoke the surrounding garden pavilions with their gray-tiled roofs, whereas the lime-colored band suggests the greenery growing adjacent to the gray stuccoed walls. At one time, Martin described the colors within his early panel paintings in terms of music, likening them to a fugue. A two- or three-panel painting, he declared, would be a chord. I wanted more movement, like music or like dance. In the opening years of the 21st century, Martin's palette reached a crescendo as he began to use an array of rich, saturated colors not seen in his work since the 1980s. They debuted with the Red Rock series, a group of large-scale paintings and related drawings that he worked on for several years. The Red Rock series relates to Gongxi, or Scholar's Rocks, are they, as they are more commonly known, which Martin began collecting in 1995. The Chinese had been collecting these rocks for religious and aesthetic purposes since at least the time of the Han Dynasty. 
Scholars placed them on their desk as focal points for meditation, and they were also venerated simply for their unusual shape and wondrous colors. Six Red Rock One is a tangle of chromatically charged, not quite primary red, yellow, blue, and green lines that meander upon a burnt orange ground. The loopy, fattened bands lope within the confines of the almost nine-foot canvas, occasionally outlining its edges to create an interior frame within the picture. The patterns these languorous, curvy lines make have been likened to subway maps from Shangri-La or even a page from the Lindisfarne Gospels. Their color instills with them an energy that Marden had tapped into through his exploration of scholars' rocks, hence the series' title. In 2000, Marden embarked on one of his largest and most ambitious paintings to date, which he titled The Propitious Garden of Plain Image, Second Version. He based the format as well as the color scheme on the number six. Six has many religious as well as cultural associations, but on a personal level, Marden feels that six is his number. It begins with his birth date, the 15th, which, when the two numbers are added, equals six. The 24-foot painting has six panels. Each panel measures six by four feet, which multiplied equals 24, two and four, which is six. This formula also applies to the painting's overall length. The six bands of color that Martin laid down are based on the visible spectrum, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. The ground colors follow the same sequence from left to right, beginning with red on the far left. Martin first laid down an orange band on a red ground, then yellow, green, blue, and purple. The second panel has an orange ground upon which he laid down a yellow, green, blue, purple, then red band. The progression continues in the order of the spectrum throughout the remaining panels. He completed Propitious Garden's second version and its pendant, Propitious Garden's third version, barely in time for the MoMA retrospective. For Propitious Garden's third version, the linear elements are applied in reverse spectrum sequence starting at the ground. The sequence begins with violet directly on top of the red ground, then builds through layers of blue, then green, then yellow, then orange on top. Martin envisioned the two paintings as taking the format of a Chinese hand scroll, but as pendants. He also saw them as equal halves of a systematic color program. Ideally, they were to be exhibited opposite one another, where they would appear as mirror images. Martin regards the propitious garden portrait paintings as self-portraits. The propitious garden refers to his own good fortune, and the plain image is a synonym for himself. Martin has used the phrase plain image for decades, often saying that his work is a synthesis of the plain and the image. I'd like to close with one of Martin's most recent paintings, and also what I consider to be one of his most beautiful. The Ruware project is titled after one of the rarest of Chinese ceramics made only during the 11th century Northern Song Dynasty. It was produced in limited quantities and exclusively for the imperial court. It is prized for its delicate bluish-green glaze that has been variously described as the color of ancient jade, moon glow, or the blue of the sky after the rain. Martin had viewed an unprecedented exhibition of Ruware in Taipei, and when he returned to his studio, he set to work on the nine-panel painting in which he captured from memory Ruware's subdued colors and changing effects. 
The panels shift in hue from sky blue to powdered green as if gazing upon the surface of the glazed porcelain. Martin has also included a single beige panel, which suggests the color of bare clay visible along the edge of a shard or a vessel's rim. A soft glow emanates from the successive layers of semi-opaque paint, making the Ruware project a contemplative painting that has the ability to calm the spirit and the mind. The artist is always beginning, the poet Ezra Pound once wrote. Any work of art which is not a beginning, an invention, a discovery, is of little worth. As if heeding Pound's imperative, Marden has constantly renewed his painting while remaining one of the last great artists of his time whose dedication to the expressive potential of abstraction has never wavered. One of his greatest gifts lies in his ability to synthesize his personal experience of people, places, things, and memories, and then to examine them through the lens of art history and subsequently to transform them with exceptional technical virtuosity into two-dimensional abstract paintings, drawings, and prints. His inventiveness throughout his working life has shown that in his hands, abstraction's vitality remains strong and relevant. But in the end, Martin knows his work is completed by the viewer on whom his art makes considerable demands, as he acknowledges, and I will end with his quote. I do everything I can in terms of what I put out for people to look at. The more responsive, the more open, the more imaginative you are, the much better the experience will be. It's hard to look at paintings. You have to be able to bring all sorts of things together in your mind, your imagination, in your whole body. It's something very deep and felt. It's all about questions that there are no answers for. It's that whole thing about mystery. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.